Evening. It's good to have you here for our evening Bible study, evening Bible hour. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, so we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the middle of the chapter and take a look. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the beauty and the glory of your handiwork that you have displayed to us this day. As we look around at creation, we've had uh, so much of the moisture, the rain, the weather that has made things so green and beautiful this time of year. We thank you for your glory. We thank you most of all for the glory of your grace, which sent your Son to be our Savior, our Redeemer, to take the likes of us and to restore us to life, to newness of life, to spiritual life, to life in Christ and life in the Spirit. And we pray this evening that you would minister to us, that we might be enriched and edified, that we might be equipped for service and ministry, that we might be a people who will glorify you in our walk, in our words, in our ways. And Father, strengthen us tonight, we pray, in these things and in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 20, the gospel of Luke, the chapter that we're in is chapter 20, and in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are chronologically in what we call the last week of his earthly ministry. I've sometimes said the last week of his ministry, but his ministry is ongoing and continual. He is ministering to us and for us this very hour, and so... We're referring back to the time when he was walking on the earth before his crucifixion that last week, which began, of course, with what we call um, Palm Sunday, the, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he was presented as the king of Israel. And in chapter 20, we are on what is probably Wednesday of that week, Tuesday or Wednesday of that week, and there has been opposition from much of the Jewish leadership. As, as we read the Gospels, as we read that last week of Christ, if you and I had been in Jerusalem, we would have said something like, the tension was so thick you could feel it. If you've, you've, said, you've heard those phrases before. You've been in situations where... You walk into a situation and you can just feel the tension in the room. The whole city of Jerusalem was on edge because they knew Jesus was coming. They expected because as an obedient Jew, he came to all the festivals and the Passover was a required attendance by every male Jew. So they expected Jesus to be there and the leaders of Israel knew Jesus would be there and they had put the word out that essentially there was a price on his head. And they were looking for a way to get rid of him. The tension has been mounting. If you follow the Gospels, it's very interesting that in the Gospel of John, John records more than any of the other writers, Jesus' ministries in the city of Jerusalem. And every time he was there, he caused a ruckus. Every time he was there, he ruffled feathers. Every time he was there, there was animosity toward him. And, and so often John points out that Jesus did his miracles on the first day of the week. I'm, I'm sorry, on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath. Why? Could he have come back and done that miracle the next day? Yeah, the man had been coming down there as a lame man every year for his whole life. He was going to be there the next day or the day before. But Jesus came on a Sabbath. He purposely healed on the Sabbath to get the attention of the people. And to prove who he was, the Lord of the Sabbath. And of course, all of this was going right over the heads of most of the leaders of Israel. So as we come into chapter 20, as we come into this time in the last week of Christ's earthly ministry, there is tension in the air. There is uh, a spirit of anticipation in the city of Jerusalem that there's going to be a showdown. And it happens in chapter 20 of the Gospel of Luke. Now, Matthew records some of the same conversations. There's a few things in Matthew that are in a little bit more detail, especially 
the end of Luke chapter 20, uh, where, where Jesus explains the warning to his disciples about the Pharisees. Matthew takes almost a whole chapter on that. Luke abbreviates it down to a nutshell. Um, but, but these passages are very, very um, vivid in, in, in the opposition to Jesus' authority that is going on here. And we, we saw that, uh, you saw that last week when uh, Brandon opened the word with us here in the early part of chapter 1 where the religious leaders came when he was teaching the chief priests in verse 1 and the scribes with the elders, they confronted him. They did not come as students to learn. They came with a confrontational spirit. Uh, they, they were there in the arrogance of their position and their self-elevated uh, authority and their self-elevated importance. And, and they were looking down at this uneducated, itinerant preacher from Galilee, of all places. The people, the, the Judeans, looked down their noses at the Galileans. Not as bad as the Samaritans, but Galilee, those those country bumpkins from up north was kind of the attitude and and so these people are challenging Christ and if you look back think back over Christ's ministry when he came to Capernaum and he was teaching in Capernaum early in his ministry he was casting out demons and he was teaching and the people were astounded because he was teaching with such authority you remember that he was teaching with such authority what does that imply? It implies that most of the other teachers people had heard had no authority. They weren't speaking with authority. They weren't, spe they weren't declaring, thus saith the Lord. They were just going through the motions. It was just empty ritual. And it was just an emptiness. But when Jesus spoke, the people said, wow, authority. They recognized it. And of course, these leaders could see it, but they hated it. It was there. They could see it, but they wouldn't admit it. And so they're out to challenge him. And I think we all know that the goal of these leaders in this week of time, when Jesus is there for the Passover, their entire goal is to do anything they can to discredit Jesus in front of the Jewish people. They, don't, they honestly don't care who does it or how it happens. As long as Jesus is discredited, Somewhere, somehow, by somebody. And so what you have is you go down through here and it comes out in Matthew. You have some of these groups working together that they didn't work together. Okay, I mean, this would be like Congress actually having uh, two parties come together and actually pass legislation. I mean, this would be like, wow, when does that ever happen? Okay, so these are groups that are opposed to one another a lot of times. They're always jockeying for position against each other, but... When it comes to Jesus, they're willing to work together to get rid of him. Such is the challenge to his authority. So here we are. We, uh, we've already gone through uh, the first 18 verses and that parable of the vineyard owner in verse 9. And wow, was Jesus, was Jesus hammering it to them uh, with that parable of the vine owner and the horrible way in which the tenant farmers uh, treated the prophets and, of course, the owner's son. What an amazing, knowing what happened the rest of the week, what an amazing parable that was for Jesus to give. Uh, Jesus knew exactly what he was saying for the rest of the week. So verse 19 is where we pick up this morning, or this evening. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So the, the, the challenging part of the, the people that were against Jesus, these leaders, they want to get rid of Jesus, but he's very, very popular. How do you get rid of a guy like that? You have to be very, very careful, or you're going to blow up the city. And, and, and of course, in the Roman perspective of things, Basically, no one really wanted to rule in Jerusalem. There were very few people, there were very few politicians in the Roman Empire who wanted the post at Jerusalem. 
but the Herods wanted it, and the people in Rome were pretty much basically glad to say, good riddance, you can have it, just keep a lid on it. That was the Roman policy, just keep a lid on the trouble. Don't let the pot boil over. That was, that was the rule. And, and these leaders know that what they want to do could cause the pot to boil over, and then they're going to be in trouble with Herod and the Roman authorities. And they don't want that because a lot of them, by the way, their positions had been politically appointed. Interwoven web of intrigue and gnarled knots of deceit all around. This is the situation. So he's very popular, so they don't want to raise up the people about all of this. So in verse 20, they watched him. They watched him. This is not the kind of watching like, oh, look how nice that is. You like to watch your grandkids play on the playground. You like to watch certain things. No, this is investigating. This is examining. This is negatively waiting to pounce. This is a cat watching the mouse. That's what this is. This is watching him. And they sent spies <laughs> who pretended to be righteous. Well, they were good at that, by the way, pretending to be righteous, in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. They're trying to find a way to get him in trouble with Rome. That's one of their goals. They want to discredit him in front of the people. They want to get him in trouble with Rome, whatever they can do to get rid of him, to diminish his influence, because they've, they've had enough of it. They're fed up with it. So they questioned him in verse 21. The very fact that they asked a question was in itself deceitful. Because they're not there seeking any information. They're not there seeking any instruction. They are not there seeking any input from Jesus. They have one thing in mind, and that's to set a trap. So they ask a question. They are so impressed with their smarts. They are going to outsmart this country bumpkin from Galilee. Uh, isn't it I ironic? How all of this going on? They're going to outsmart God? Yes, that's what they think. They actually are convinced they can do this. It's sad. It's pitiful. But it shows us the depth of antagonism of sin against God. And, and we need to be careful because we're looking in the mirror here also, by the way, of our own antagonism against God whenever we turn to sin. So they questioned him, verse 21, saying, Teacher, we know, we, we know that you speak and teach correctly. Butter, 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 butter. Lay it on thick. Make it all look really good. Make yourself look good. They are snakes in the grass. We know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. They don't believe that. Or they would have humbled themselves and followed it. They don't believe that. So they ask this question. I love this question. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? <laughs> we got the right question. We find, we've been working on this for three years, and we finally got the question that's going to nail him. We are going to get rid of him, man. He is going to be in so much trouble with Rome, or else the Jewish people are going to hate his guts. Because no matter which way he answers it, he's going to be wrong. Man, we are so smart. We are so clever. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And I think we all know what the consequences were. If he says, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, then the Jews were going to hate him because they hated Rome. And if he says, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to be in trouble with Rome because of an insurrectionist. All right, so they think they've got it figured out. Verse 23, he detected their trickery. No surprise there. And he said to them, and I love this, show me a denarius. 
show me a denarius. And I think there's a special irony here because I think what he did is he asked the people who were asking him the question, basically saying, which one of you has a denarius in your pocket? Get it out and show it to me. And one of them did. Which already shows them that they have already submitted to Caesar because they're carrying his money in their pouch. So he's already punched them once. And now he's going to punch them again. Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Isn't this genius? What a, what a great answer. And they said, Caesar's, of course. Caesar had his picture on the money. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. If it has Caesar's image on it, give it back to Caesar. If it has God's image on it, give it back to God. You are created in God's image. All of you should be submitting to God, and you're not. Wow. He not only, he not only didn't get caught in the trap, he turned it around and snapped them with it. You ever play with the mouse trap? That, that's probably something boys are more prone to do than girls. You, you set a mouse trap and you take turns passing it back and forth as, as it's set. And so you're trying to take it from the other guy without getting your fingers in the way and without jiggling it enough to spring it so that your fingers don't get snapped. That's what these guys are doing with Jesus. But he, he turns it right around on them and snaps them just like that. Verse 26 says, They were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. In the brilliance of their preparations, they have figured out that if they catch him at a moment when there's a big crowd, they will have it at their advantage. <laughs> and even that, Jesus turns around and dumps on their head because they have just been deflated in front of the whole crowd. And the crowd is seeing, wow, these guys, these guys can't hold a candle to Jesus. These guys don't have a hope. These guys don't have an answer. People probably nudging each other. Did you see that? Did you hear that? I mean, I th I'm, this is 2,000 years later. I still think it's pretty cool. And I'm sure that was murmur going through the crowd. Wow, did you hear that? Whoa, what an answer. And, and so these leaders <laughs> become silent. They become silent. The people are amazed at his answer. And these leaders are amazed and become silent. You know, when you go back through Scripture, and you could make a list yourself tonight, just recalling from Scripture, all of the times when men have shaken their little fist against God's authority. And, and we have a long history of doing that through Scripture, through history. I mean, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden said, you know, God, you've got dumb rules. We don't like that rule. We're going to eat the fruit anyway. I'm, I'm, no, I'm putting words in their mouth, but I mean, that really is essentially what happens, right? The, the days of Noah. God sends a preacher, Noah, to preach judgment coming in the flood because of man's sin. And people laugh at Noah, the preacher of righteousness, and ignore everything God said. Ha, 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 you're a nitwit. What an idiot. Rain. What's rain? Can you just can imagine the ridicule that happened then? Yeah, until the day it started to rain. And then God wasn't such an idiot that day, but it was a little late. Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, Israel in the wilderness over and over, Egypt, the Pharaoh against God. I mean, it just goes on and on. Men shaking their fist at God's authority, challenging God's authority. And, I mean, wow, our whole culture today, at every turn, shaking their fist at God and saying, where is God? Why, you know, 
we don't need God. Look at what we can do. It's all around us. Who has the last word? God always does. Men will be silent in the presence of God. And I think it, it doesn't actually say this in the book of Revelation at the great white throne, but it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God the Father. I think there's going to be some silence there too. Just I'm just guessing. That's going to be a terrifyingly, awesomely dreadful time. And, and so when we see that Jesus caused these people to be totally silenced, it is just a glimpse of the power and the impact of his answer against the foolishness of men. So that's the first question that we have in our text tonight. And then the second one comes up in verse 27. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And that's how you can remember this group. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and that's why they were sad, you see? See? That's one way to keep track of it. What would you do if you did not believe there was a resurrection? I can tell you this, I probably wouldn't be in this building on Sunday nights. If there was no resurrection, pfft. eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. When to go around once, you might as well have fun on that trip going around. I mean, the resurrection is so critical, so important. And here are these people who do not believe in the resurrection, which means they don't believe the Old Testament. So they come to Jesus and they question him. Now, these guys are so smart. I mean, these are the theologians. These are the guys who have been sitting around drinking, probably not coffee, grape juice, over the years of their theological discussions uh, around the courtyard, around the temple, in their theological schools, and uh, answering the questions of their students and fine-tuning their theology and we have finally figured out the ultimate argument for why there is no resurrection. And so they go back to the Old Testament. And of course, if you're going to prove that you're smarter than God, it always helps to use God's material to throw at him, you know, to show how wrong he is. So they go back to the Old Testament and say, well, there was this law that if, if a man died, if a man got married and they didn't have any sons to inherit his name and his property and that man died, then his next brother would marry. You all know the, 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 the story here. So seven sons, seven brothers end up being married to this uh, lady, and they all die. And so the question is then, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Ha ha, see, we just proved. There's no way God would allow one woman to be married to seven men at the same time so there can't be a resurrection. See how smart we are? It's impossible for one woman to be married. God would never allow a woman to be married to seven men at the same time and call that right. So there must not be a resurrection. You see, there's a sort of a logical gap in there. And, and yet, they're so impressed with their ability to figure it out that they, they actually go through this argument and ask Jesus this question. In, in verse 33, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And of course, Jesus points out that they've missed the whole point. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, the age of resurrection, the age of the future, the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels. It does not say they are angels or they become angels. They are in some way like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. That's the first part of his answer. Angels do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. In the resurrection, you will be like that, like the angels. In the resurrection, you will not be married or given in marriage. 
And, and for those of us that have been joyfully married in the Lord, you know, sort of, wow, well, I'm going to miss that. You know, that sweet fellowship and closeness, and wow, it's like, that's going to be really different. But it's going to be far better, even better than that. We're going to be married to the Lord. We're going to be focused on him. So the first part of his answer is that there's not going to be marriage in the resurrection. The second part of his answer in verse 37 is that you guys are missing the whole point of the Old Testament, which you just quoted, but which you are obviously not thinking through because Moses... In verse 37, indicated that the dead are raised. In the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's dealing with the fact that the name Jehovah or Yahweh, translated the Lord in our English Bible, is a Hebrew present tense. And there at the burning bush, he said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He did not say, what Christ is saying is, remember that Moses did not hear God say, I was the God of Abraham, implying that when Abraham was in existence, I was his God. I was the God of Isaac. When Isaac was in existence, I was his God. I was the God of Jacob. When Jacob was in existence, I was his God too. And now you're here and I'm your God. That's not what God said. He said, today, as I'm talking to you at this burning bush, I am the God of Abraham. I am still Abraham's God, which means Abraham is still around. I am still Isaac's God. I am Jacob's God, and now I'm going to be your God, the God of eternity. And Christ is here saying that that indicated to us in the Old Testament that there is life after physical death. Now, even when Moses heard God say that, and when Jesus quoted it, Abraham's body was still buried in a tomb along with Isaac's and Jacob's, the same location over there in Israel. Bodies are still there. God says, I am the God of Abraham. Where's Abraham? He's with God. He's resurrected. Well, he's not res Well, he is alive with God after death. His, his body isn't resurrected yet, but it will be. So, Christ takes these guys back to the Old Testament. And you remember back in Psalm 119 where the psalmist said, I have more wisdom than my teachers? This country bumpkin is telling the theological scholars to go back and read their Old Testament. Go back and check the Hebrew grammar. You missed it. It's a present tense verb. You got to love that. So even Moses showed that in the passage about the burning bush where he called where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him, all live unto him. So the truth of the matter is that tonight while we are sitting here in our bodies, and the bodies of many of the people that we have known and loved who have trusted the Lord are now laid in the grave and the countless saints of the ages are laid in the grave and, and gone to dust. They're still with the Lord tonight. They are with the Lord. Don't ask me to explain that. But it's true. The soul, spirit, that inner part of man that goes back to be with the Lord is with the Lord. And maybe there's an intermediate body. I've never been able to understand all that stuff because I figure one day God will show me. I don't, if I don't understand it, it's okay, right? It's, it's not going to change much for me down here. And, and as soon as it happens, I'll know the answer. So 
and I'm not minimizing those who believe there's certain statements in Scripture. I just, I've never been able to figure it out. Maybe I'm lazy. Verse 38. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So, some of the scribes answered and said, wow, that was a really good answer. That was a really good answer because you kind of threw a curveball at us. We didn't even see coming. But they, did they really believe that it was a good answer? I don't know. Are they trying to save face in front of the people? I don't know. With the, at this point, they're so deceitful that we can't really maybe understand all their motives. But they at least give lip service to the fact that he has spoken well. And at this point, verse 40 tells us, they did not have the courage to question him any longer about anything. Matthew, a little bit more than Luke, brings out the intensity of the antagonism and the ongoing pursuit of group after group after group who just came to Jesus and brought an onslaught of these questions, these attacks against Jesus' authority. And in every case, the people who come challenging his authority are the ones who walk away in silence. They are the ones who walk away humiliated, defeated, and frustrated. Their blood pressure goes up a couple or more notches. This doesn't resolve anything in their minds. It just makes it more frustrating for them because they still haven't figured out a way to get rid of him. Even after all of this series of challenges and questions. So, this is nothing new to the Lord Jesus, to have challenges to his authority. It has come directly as an onslaught from the devil himself in his temptation. It has come repeatedly in his ministry from demonic hosts who have... Uh, indwelt unbelieving people and people have been demon possessed and, and that attack has been constant in his ministry ever since he started. He has had people questioning him wherever he went. But but there is no there are no groups who are as antagonistic and as set against Christ as the spiritual leaders of God's people. I use those terms loosely the religious leaders of Israel. We can go several different directions by way of application of that. I think in history, history has borne out the fact that a great amount of the persecution in history against God's people, believers of whatever age, whether it was Jewish Old Testament people, Believers in of the church age in the New Testament, whatever, a, a great amount of persecution that has come against God's people has often, frequently, much of the time been from religious people. And sometimes quoting uh, uh, God's authority, saying they're God's people. I mean, it's it, the church has persecuted the church. Jews have persecuted Jews. Other religions have persecuted Jews and Christians. And unfortunately, there have been times in history when Jews have persecuted other people and so-called Christians, professing Christians, have persecuted others. Uh, we don't have time to go into the history of uh, some of the conflicts between various Christian groups, but the, the bloodshed of believers uh, on the grounds of Europe... Uh, has just been widespread over hundreds of years, all at the hands of people who use the name of Christ. It's, it's, it's a horrible history. Among religious people who are self-satisfied with their own righteousness, who are not submitting to God's word, who are impressed with their own religious 
status, capability, leadership, whatever, there's a tremendous opposition to God's word and to God's truth. The devil sits in a great many religious board meetings. He has over history over a long time. And, and, and it's not just limited to one denomination or one group. But, but the amount of arrogance and self-elevation of importance into offices and the recognition by other people of, of, of the great highness of whatever position a person has just pumps the ego of, 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 of men and, and high positions in Christian religious church organizations have been filled by a great many unregenerate people, high offices, unregenerate people. And they're, they're just like the men in our passage. They may be in a high religious position, but they're in opposition to the person of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we have opportunity to witness to some of those people. They're a hard nut to crack. Because quite often they're so taken with their own self-righteousness that they don't want to hear anything about it. They're quite impressed with themselves quite often and quite often very much willing to share their credentials with you. They got this whole alphabet soup after their name, you know. But what do they do with the authority of Christ? The authority of Jesus the Christ. Is he the Lord of lords and the King of kings? Is he the Savior of the world? Or he is, is he an inconvenient nuisance in the midst of doing the religious work that we're doing? You think that's not a debate that's going on in today's world? Not much has changed. Not much has changed. Some of you got saved out of maybe some church or religious group and you went back and tried to share with people the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and how you came to Christ and you, you found newness of life and you found forgiveness of sins and they look at you like you grew a third eye. Like, what planet did you come from? What happened to you? And they don't want to hear anything about it. And you may have heard what many have heard. Well, you know, just, you know, don't get carried away. Just calm down. Keep it to yourself. You'll get over it, we hope. If you don't, we'll probably get rid of you, but we won't say that right now. Not much has changed in the world in 2,000 years. So these guys leave frustrated very frustrated, irritated, agitated, plotting still, trying to find ways to get rid of him. And then to make matters worse, Jesus asks them a question. I love this. It just gets get better, better and better. Verse 41, then he said to them, to them, the, the leaders, the religious guys that came, how is it, since we're talking about the Old Testament, you brought it up, so by the way, since you mentioned the Old Testament, how is it that they say that the Christ is David's son? Because back in the book of Psalms, David himself said, the Lord, God in heaven, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David was saying, I, I know the Messiah is going to come, but he's my Lord. How can a son of David be Lord, God? Jesus is asking them the question. Part of it, I think, implied here is, okay, you guys all know that I obviously have declared and demonstrated that I'm the Messiah the son of David, the king of Israel, God in the flesh. I've demonstrated that. You guys know your theology. You know the Old Testament. That's what I've demonstrated. That's what I'm telling everybody. But since you're not going to admit it, 
then let's go back to the Old Testament and ask the question, how, if you don't think that's possible, that I could be standing here in the flesh and still be God, and evidently you don't think so because you're against me, then how is it that David said that his descendant, who was going to be a child out of his own loins, coming down through the generations, was going to be the Messiah, the God of Israel? How is that possible? How is it that David said there's going to be a man who is God in the flesh, and yet you don't believe that that's who I am, when I've demonstrated very clearly that's who I am? That's a pretty good question. It sort of puts them on the spot. In front of thousands, perhaps, thousands of people. Verse 43 continues the quote, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Obviously a reference to the kingly reign of the Messiah. So he finishes verse 44. Then David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? How could David call a in the ancient world, who is it who calls someone else Lord? Isn't it the son who calls the father the Lord? The father's the head, reverenced, revered, the age, seniority, respected. David is calling his descendant his Lord? How can that be possible? Unless David's descendant is the Lord. Wow, what a great question. I think these guys thought they were going to slip out quietly out the back and get away. But he caught them with this question before they left. So verse 45, and while all of the people were listening, he's got everyone's attention. He says to his disciples, <laughs> this just, as far as the Sadducees are, because this is going from bad to worse. Okay? I mean, this is going from bad. This is bad. It, this turned out bad, and it's getting badder and badder. Man, first of all, he answers our question. Secondly, he proves us wrong. Thirdly, he asks us a question we can't answer. Fourthly, he proves that we're not admitting who he is, and we all know who, who he is, and the people all know who he is, but we're not saying who he is because we don't want to admit it. And now, in front of everybody else, he warns everybody about us. This is not a good day for these people. So while all the people are listening, he says to the disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. You can just see this, can't you? And love respectful greetings in the marketplace. Oh, hello, sir, doctor, so-and-so. And they love the chief seats in the synagogues. And, and this is where we know that you're not Jews. Bible-believing Christians love the back seats. In the synagogues, if you were important, you proceeded in and took the prominent seats in the front. And everybody knew who was important. There was a pecking order in the society. And, and if you were somewhere toward the top of the pecking order, you delighted in letting people know it. This was all part of the emptiness of, of what was Judaism in the first century. And Christ nails it every time. He, he just, it's anathema. And he's, he's trying to drill it into the heads of the disciples. This is all backwards. If you want to follow me, you want to be a servant. You'll, don't, you're not going to be first. You're going to be last. If you go to a banquet, don't come up and sit in the prominent seat. Go to the back and sit in the seat of a servant and let the host move you up. Let someone else exalt you. Don't exalt you. You see how counter this was to the Jewish mind. But it's the spirit of the Old Testament law that he's teaching the people. And so he's warning the disciples. They love places of honor at the banquets. And then they turn around and devour widows' houses. They mortgage widows' houses and call the mortgage and kick the widows out. There's no compassion here. There's no justice. There's no mercy. And, and, and this, out of all of the Old Testament condemnations that Jesus could make upon a Jewish man, this is one of the worst. How he would treat a widow or an orphan. God brought an anathema upon his Old Testament people when they mistreated widows and orphans. And this is exactly what Jesus says. 
and for appearance sake they offer long prayers. <laughs> you can just notice that these people over here remember when Rabbi so-and-so last Tuesday, he stood there in that corner for hours praying. Do you remember that? That was hours. Uh, you hear what Jesus just said? For their pretense and their long prayers? Yeah. He's got these guys squirming with embarrassment and shame. But it didn't change their hearts. If anything, they came back with a more severe backlash by the end of the week. And then he caps it all by saying, these will receive greater condemnation. They think that by their sitting in the prominent seats, by their long prayers, by their robes, by their meticulous keeping of all of these rituals and laws, by their life that seems so squeaky clean, that, that they are going to be... You know, God's going to delight to bring them into heaven. And he says, these are the people who will have the greatest condemnation. That is so upside down and backwards to what the people thought, to the way people looked at life. And it's upside down and backwards to the way a lot of religious people look at life today. The, the, uh, there's a lot of people out there that are churchgoers or at least somehow, you know, they went to church as a kid and they sort of still see themselves as religious, and they believe that people are good, basically good, and, 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 and you need to do good in order to get to heaven, and your good needs to outweigh your bad. And, and it's all this idea of, of being good, doing good, being good, doing good, looking good. It's worthless. It's all worthless. And what Jesus is saying is the higher you are up that ladder, the more worthless it is. And the greater your condemnation because you're leading other people astray into that same error. I, I shudder to think of, of what judgment awaits the leaders of false groups, of churches that are not teaching the word of God, of religious groups and organizations that are anti-Christ. They're against the word of God. They're against the authority of God they are under God's condemnation. And but for the grace of God, that's where we would be. I'd still be in that liberal church I grew up in. I'd, still be, I'd probably be sitting on some committee with my smug, self-righteous. Yeah, well, you know, everybody else in town is doing this stuff, but we don't do that here attitude, right? I mean, but for the grace of God, that's where we would be. So as we go on in the book of Luke, now Luke, Luke doesn't take much more time on this warning. Matthew does, if you want to read more about it. I think it's Matthew 23. is almost a whole chapter on the warnings that Christ gives here to the people. Uh, and I mean, he goes on and on. It's, it, you think you've been embarrassed? You should read that. This bad. It's very good, but I mean it's bad. So Luke is going to move on then into the, the Olivet Discourse here pretty quickly and, and move on into that. And he also doesn't take as much time on the Olivet Discourse. If you want to see the more fuller rendition of that, you go to Matthew 24 and 25. So that's where we're going here. I hope you've been in studying, enjoying studying this Gospel of Luke. We've been at it for a while, but wow, so much, so rich. Don't you love watching our Lord? Just seeing, hearing what he did, how he did it, how he handled people, the compassion, the mercy, the tenderness toward those in need, and yet, man, he had a hammer for those that were self-righteous. And he knew how to use it. Compassionate, gracious Lord, and yet he is the Lord of the earth. And he will be on the throne as the judge and the king. Amen. Woohoo! Even so, come Lord Jesus. Can't be too soon for me.
Can't be too soon for me. I don't need to draw a pension, Lord. I'm fine. Just take me out of here. My pension's waiting for me. Right? Amen. Well, God, help us to learn to recognize the authority of Christ in our daily living and constantly yield to him. Because we still struggle. We're still stubborn. Eh, Lord, I don't like that idea. I'm going to go over here and do this. Yeah, I hope that works out real well for you. But don't hold your breath. Amen? God in heaven, we thank you tonight. When we read the words of these confrontations in the last days of Christ's earthly ministry, we are we're just moved in a number of different ways. We're, we're just, again, incredibly encouraged and astounded at the wisdom and the knowledge of Christ, our Savior. We're embarrassed almost on behalf of these people that dared to question his authority, and yet we recognize that they needed to be put into their place. And we ourselves, whenever in human pride, whenever we lift up ourselves against your wisdom, Father, we find ourselves in the same embarrassingly bad spot. And whenever we choose sin, we have chosen to rebel against your authority. So, Father, I pray that you will help us to learn and grow in your word, in wisdom. Father, we love the Lord. We look forward to that day when the Son of David will be manifested as Lord of Lords, King of Kings. It can't come too soon. Father in heaven, strengthen us while we serve you as we wait. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. I don't know if I've heard that.